Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. On this very special episode of Super Pulp Science, I am joined by Dr. Jonathan Ball, my collaborator on The Eye Collector. This is part of a two-part conversation, so if you'd like to hear more, you can jump on over to Writing the Wrong Way at strangerfiction.ca, where you can find a whole bunch of stuff. What did you say? <laughs> new website? It's Jonathan's new website. Oh, well, strangerfiction.ca. Right? All right, that's fine. That yeah, okay. <laughs> provided me with uh, a full script, uh, meaning that every panel was described what should be happening in that panel. Uh, it included the dialogue that would appear in that panel and a rough sort of geography of how you saw the pages would be laid out uh, in terms of double page spreads or what the beats were or how the uh, individual constituent parts would fit together. A detailed script. Different from a Marvel-style script, which is a general description of what you need to happen on the page, and you let the artist figure it out. What I would then do with that detailed description is I would go through and would ask Jonathan to tell me what is the emotional beat, what's the important thing that would happen on this page. And it got to the point where his drafts would include, uh, this is the most important thing I need to see on this page. Um, because what I would do with it is I would then synthesize, how can I make... Um, if this page is a math problem where the solution is showing that important thing, how do we get from nothing, the blank page, to that important thing using the individual um, constituent parts of our story? And we have characters in that story. We have line. We have tone. But I also employ texture um, as a narrative device. So I made these washes, which I used to represent and I had done this technique in a in another book called uh, Will I See that I did with uh, David Alexander Robertson and uh, singer-songwriter Isque uh, where I used these textural appearances on the art as narrative clues and so when these certain smoky textures appear it means that something surreal is occurring it could be dream, it could be magic, it could be imagination, but whatever happens when those textures appear, it might not be totally real or totally present. And so then I went through the script and I looked at all the different places where the elements of the story were subject to interpretation by the characters inside the story. And then I would look at what is that interpretation and how can I twist it? so that what appears on the page is a little bit of a puzzle to the reader on the first read, but becomes more obvious when you got to the end. So at the end of every issue, once you kind of hear the punchline of the 22 page sort of chapter arcs, um, you can go back to the beginning and see, oh, that foreshadows that, this foreshadows this, this is an echo of this image and playing back and forth as an individual unit. When Jonathan came to me and said, you know, I want to make comics, what is, the, what is the unit of comics? I said, the most common unit of comics is the 22-page issue, you know, the floppy. So if you can write your story in those units, you'll at least be creating things that the 
general comic reading audience is aware of, or at least the older one. Modern comic audiences are more familiar with the graphic novel, getting it all at once. Um, but if you can write a, a story that big sets up characters, setting, uh, plot, and reaches a conclusion inside of 22 pages, much like the pro short story, you get in and out, present an idea, then you'll be able to present comics in a way that, you know, publishers and stores and readers will at least understand the unit of delivery, even if they find the story a little bit difficult to uh, accept or understand. You know, we approached it really kind of, you know, from an ivory tower position of like, we're going to make something weird and it's okay if people don't understand it. I wanted at least one thing that they understood to be, there are chapters. And when the chapter is over, if you're confused, the secrets have been revealed visually when you get to the end and you can go back and see those repetitions. So like really specifically, one thing I did is in the script, there is a, a call for, uh, the character of Nathan's mother to be essentially under the spell of an abusive husband and an abusive like dream parasite, essentially. And so she kind of is in this repetitive role for the first long time, restating the same things and redoing the same things and always having this kind of uh, attitude and in my own art style, I found that the quickest, simplest way to represent that she can't change was to simply repeat the images we'd already seen of her in different contexts, but that eventually the reader would be like, wait, this is the same panel as the last page when the mom is talking. Hey, that's the same panel as the first page. Why is the mother never changing, but these other characters are able to change? And until she has agency in the story, she doesn't actually appear as anything more than repeated images, like an echo as she's being represented. So that's like a physical way in which I approach creating the art in this story. Whereas um, uh, Nathan, our main character, he always appears in different contexts. Even if an image of him repeats, um, it always repeats his intent in the story, not the eye collector's or his father's intent in the story. Well, another, there's sort of two things that tie in here really quickly too, is uh, I'm a massive fan of David Lynch. And what I think is the brilliance and genius of David Lynch is that he's he realized uh, that if you take a story form and you present a story in its traditional conventional form, and you take, you know, sections of the story and present them in traditional structure. Like if you get the structure of the story right. And if you present it inside of a genre, and if you hit all the things in that the genre demands, like all the essential elements of the genre, um, what he realizes is that you don't have to do anything else. <laughs> you know, you can put anything else. Once you hit like the 20 things that make a story and a genre work, you can just change everything else is just uh, can be randomized uh, or can be altered and repeat. Like it doesn't have to make sense as a story as long as it feels like a story. And it doesn't have to, you know, like the eye collector does make sense, but like there's all these, like you don't necessarily need to have, say, uh, a wall that is a wall. Like the wall can also become like a bunch of lines and then turn into eyeballs and then something can walk through it. 
you know, and no one needs to even comment on this as long as like on the surface, uh, on the structural level, you know, there, there's this other thing that's happening that is taking story precedence. Like, you know, there's no reason why, you know, people in a story need to have the same face all the time <laughs> as a weird example. Yeah. Well, uh, cause the eye collector, here's a great example. Well, you're speaking specifically to the book. Now the eye collector appears constantly shifting its appearance. And there are a few visual cues that let the reader know that, Oh, that's the eye collector. That's the eye collector. It's not a big, it's not a big secret. What it is, is a dream logic. Like we've, we set up yes. the story. So that it has story structure. And then we set up the characters so that the mother who is trapped is trapped visually. The creature that is a dream creature is represented with dream logic, always amorphous, always changing, always reappearing, always appearing to in places where uh, it's inconvenient for them to appear. And they seem to be moving the story from the outside of the panel borders or reaching into the panel borders. So like all of those internal structures were just like ways in which uh, Jonathan and I said, okay, in our story that we're going to give up so many other rules while we're making it, we're going to be strictly almost dogmatically uh, locked into some other rules so that there at least feels like structure exists, even if the reader is not sure um, what it all means. They will be able to say, okay, well, this is repeating. This must be important. That's semiotics, right? And, and a big part of that must is be the important. pace, right? Like the atmosphere and the pace, I think are so important in horror. Um, even more than, like I always say that I'll always sacrifice sense for tone when it comes right down to it. Uh, and so a big part of that, that kind of feeds in the process was one of the things we did was we, 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 we hired Lyndon Radchenka to do the, our letters, uh, who we'd worth, you know, you'd work with a number of times. Uh, and, uh, one of the things we got him to do, which was really unusual is he would, I'd write my script, then I would pay him to letter blank pages and, uh, panel layouts for blank pages. Now you wouldn't even necessarily follow those panel layouts, um, but it really just showed you kind of what I was thinking of in terms of the pace of things. So even if you were going to alter and shift things uh, to improve them in certain ways, you just had a real clear sense of how I thought the story should flow and how it should feel from page to page. Um, and so, like, again, my belief is that if you can lock the reader and the audience into feeling a certain way on a, at a certain time, then they'll give you so much latitude in terms of the specifics and the details, you know, because they don't like, once they understand that this guy is creeped out by what they're seeing, it almost doesn't matter what they're seeing anymore. Yeah. And there's this other side of it too, whereas um, comics as a visual medium, like one of the things that I bring to it is a, a, a pretty intense belief that comics as a visual medium, if it doesn't look interesting, don't bother. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like if you're going to just draw it in a boring way, in a didactic way, um, don't bother. Uh, there are plenty of people who render perfect anatomy, perfect locations. Their books do nothing emotionally for me. They just cannot reach me. Uh, even if the writing is good because I'm just not interested in what I'm looking at. I might as well, I love reading short stories. I love reading prose. I love books. There are a lot of graphic novels and a lot of comics works on the stands today 
by people who have forgotten that it is a visual medium and that they should let their artists run a little bit wild because otherwise make it a novel. Let people imagine the good parts because the art is not doing you any favors. It's not bringing anything spectacular to it. Yeah. And on my side of it, in terms of like prose fiction, uh, like I have almost no interest in literary realism. I have almost no interest in psychological realism, you know, although slightly more interest. I, I just, you know, don't have a lot of interest in uh, just so many of the, like, I feel like so many novels that are written today could have been written in the 1800s and nobody would know the difference other than there's maybe a few less words. It's a bit more of a stripped down Hemingway-esque style, but it's essentially the same thing. People are walking from one side of the room to the other. You know, people are saying what they mean. You know, people are, uh, like, time is moving in a normal, like, forward uh, chronologically. Like, it's just, it sounds like a weird complaint, but I just feel like there's just so much, because I got a PhD in literature also, and I studied experimental uh, art, and, you know, I just, there's just so many tools that are in the toolbox that I just don't see people using anymore. Let's address for a moment. I think it's important for us to address for a moment what kind of, that we sound like super stuffy, stodgy assholes (laughs) and that it's okay. It's okay sometimes to be a super stodgy, stuffy asshole. In context, a different book I'm working on has uh, a robot with a sword fighting monsters uh, on the moon, right? Like I'm not, that's, it's not everything. Not every book has to encompass all these things that we're talking about. But why the eye collector exists the way it does is because all of these different pieces fit together into a project where we could explore it um, in a way that was interesting and fun. You know, like when... Well, there's uh, also, uh, though, a darker side, uh, not a dark side, but a, a, a bit of a contrarian side of that. Because the advice you will always give to people, and I've heard you give a million times, and it is good advice is you'll tell people like, hey, if you want to get in comics, make a four-page comic, right? And I, it's, it's yeah, great I advice, it's smart advice, but there's the contrary. I heard you give that advice so much, Kiri, that I was, you know, and like, you know, pick something you know, write what you know, do a four-page comic, you know, do something small and manageable. So I was like, whatever, Gregory. <laughs> like, there's a bit of me that was like, I'm going to do a 120-page comic from my first comic. And it's going to be the you know, totally the opposite of everything that, uh, you know, people do. And then also gets you to do it on top of that. (laughs) There's a little bit of contrarian, like ambition in me, you know, uh, where I just want to do like, I give that that make, uh, uh, make a four page comedy. So many people who it's good uh, advice, you know, come to our workshops or come to our, you know, speaking things or come see me at a show or whatever and ask like, how do I get into comics? They're, they're speaking from an aspirational point of view. They'd like to start, right? And there's nothing more daunting when you're trying to start something than someone telling you, well, give me a 200-page epic. You won't, you won't start and you will believe that these people are somehow special because they can accomplish that. And there is not a single special thing about any published writer on earth, no matter how they are um, presented as geniuses. The, the deal is what they can do that you haven't done yet is that they started something and finished it and then turned it in for broad criticism. So people can do that with a four page story and they can accept the criticism because it doesn't take them that long. And if people didn't like it, they know they can do it again. And so that's why I give that advice so often. Those are two people who are starting out people like yourself who have, 
finished films, sold work, uh, published short stories, you know, published poetry collections, experimented in lots of genres. You know, you've written for television. You know, we both worked on a show together. Uh, you're, you're not the person that advice is pointed at. So in a way, it's great that you took it as not applying to you because it doesn't really apply to people who can already do things. If you have in your heart or mind an idea for something that you know you can accomplish, don't listen to advice that you should make it small. Go and do it. But if you haven't accomplished it after 12 months, you're never going to. So start on, the, on the flip again. side. I did sort of take my initial idea of it being, you know, way more than five issues, strip it down to a nice five act, five issue structure, you know, uh, and maybe before the kids burst in. So there is a level at which I was sort of listening to what you're saying, but there's also like this level, I think, at which I just feel like. Um, part of my ambition as an artist is that I want to do the thing that other people aren't doing. And I want to do the thing that people tell me I shouldn't do. And so a lot of the kind of stuff, I, I don't think it's a, kind of a stuffiness or like we're old men yelling at clouds so much as like, I think we just both have that bit of that contrarian streak, right? Of like, oh, you want me to make a picture that you, that looks pretty? Well, how about a picture where eyeballs are bleeding, you know, <laughs> because they're stuck through with moons? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it also will be pretty. How do you think of that? Yeah, you know, it will make it pretty awesome. Well, but that before is the, the kids burst through the door, Gregory, let's just talk a little bit about uh, how we hooked up with heavy metal and kind of where the eye collector is now and where it's going. Do you want to sure. just... But let's also recognize that I think that this uh, audio file, uh, Dan or whoever else is going to edit it, we may need to carve up into other little pieces so we don't have sure. to truncate or fit everything in uh, all in one place. Um, there's like a long boring part where we talk didactically about how we know each other. And then there's also an interesting uh, process part. I think those could be carved up into different episodes pretty sure. uh, easily. Yeah, just even just one a, per option, you know, one you, per podcast or whatever yeah um so the thing about heavy metal to me as a publisher for this is that it's one of those things i think like you it's one of those places that exists for me nostalgically first and physically yes. second heavy metal is a presence uh, that existed in the world of literature comics science fiction horror and fantasy while I was a young boy being exposed to my first ideas about what comics were. And then heavy metal uh, really showed me that it's the genre uh, magazine that is displaying that comics are a medium and not a genre and that you can do anything with it. Because a kid that's reading the new issue of Daredevil at 10 years old and has been handed um, an issue of heavy metal by his older cousin with the caveat that like, don't let your mom catch you with this, um, sees now that comics aren't one thing and they've never been one thing. And there's this magazine's been published for a decade before you came along, which means there's a whole secret history to how you can use words and pictures, um, which is a little bit, contrarian it's a little bit you know uh does heavy metal have a long history of misogyny for sure it does does it have a long history of uh you know poor representation sure it does does it have a long history of challenging genre norms it does that too 
And so it's a, you know, it's this weird publication history uh, that it's always been open to weird and interesting new things. And now as they do things like um, put armor on Tarna, they're criticized for being too um, palatable. Well, this is, you know, Matt, that we, I don't know how much we can talk about heavy metal, Dan. Uh, you may want to cut this out because I forget the contract has something about not talking too much about heavy metal, but like in a, in a negative light. Well, but we're not I talking think, about it negatively. We're just no, talking but, about it where I like, I'm interested in being part of heavy metal uh, because it's pushed all of these boundaries all the time. Um, well, and we also are, we, uh, just kind of tie into the nostalgia thing you were saying, like, I, you know, for me, I, I'm excited by a lot of the stuff they're doing now, like their book Super Nod and Angels Want to Rear My Red Shoes and so on. But there is, I like you say, like it, it's nostalgia first for me because it was the book I bought, you know, when I got off the bus in Winnipeg, you know, and I you know, moved out and I was like, and I picked it up and Jodorowsky was in the issue I happened to pick up. And it was just, just crazy story, you know, with this incredible art. And it was, uh, and it had that, experimental avant-garde edge that I really um, appreciated and still, you know, to this day, like that's the sort of, you know, my people in a way, right. It was like the genre avant-garde kind of edge of things. Uh, but like place you say, taboo is, you know, yeah, in conflict. Taboo is always in conflict with the mainstream and whatever that mainstream is, the taboo is always different uh, depending on what decade you're in or, you know, even what year. And also, uh, even though it has this kind of long uh, history, it has this newer management and it's been sort of turning in different directions. As you say, they're putting, you know, armor on ta on Tarna now and stuff. And so uh, I, I'm really interested in it. And one of the things that kind of um, uh, we've kind of found, you know, uh, great about heavy metal so far is, you know, how it really has been a, um, it's been a place that still kind of has kept that edge without, you know, well, while trying to kind of modernize it, you know? Uh, and I also think that they have a really interesting, um, uh, it's just that legacy of it is I, I, my, my feeling, you know, these days that is, you know, really trying to kind of hold on to the best of the legacy and, sh and shed the worst. Um, and, you know, just on a really simple level, which you is really cool is. to be published by heavy metal. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> you know, you know, like I'm excited to be with a publisher that doesn't mind if our book is very weird and has some imagery in it that um, and has never asked us to make it less weird. You know, yeah, if uh, anything, more so. Startling, frankly. Yeah. Now, um, all this uh, to say that uh, I Collector is being published through Heavy Metal's creator-owned imprint, which is another piece of the puzzle which made it interesting to us because we were making a work that was experimental and if it does, did or does strike with an audience it'll be solely because of this weirdness we added not because of editorial inputs not because of corporate interests not because of any of those things so if you're taking a risk like that you should own it well and i think that's another reason that, that we were uh, just generally interested in going creative owned whoever we ended up with it was just we wanted to have that be in that position where we could say no like 
So heavy metal hasn't come to ask us to change anything whatsoever, which has actually been surprising. Like nothing whatsoever have they asked me us to change. But uh, you know that's not um, the most normal situation. Usually they want to get. Usually publishers, in my experience, even if they're good publishers, they want to get their fingers in there and they want to tell you what to do because they think it'll help. And sometimes it does help, but other times they're they're ruining it and they don't get it. Uh, yeah, for know. right or wrong, my experience has always been that publishers want to help. That's yeah, always and, and, and often where I'll, they're coming from. It's not always the help that is good help or the help you want uh, or the help you agree with, uh, but they're always trying to help. You know, I've, I've had plenty of uh, creative disagreements with lots of different projects that have not resulted in, uh, you know, anger or book throwing simply recognizing that every group that is publishing has a brand identity. They have a thing they're trying to maintain. There's a reason they asked for your book because they saw something, a potential in it that supports that. And when you veer away from that as you approach publication, that's going to lead to conflict. We haven't yet had any such things uh, with heavy metal, which is a nice breath of fresh air. Um, This could be one of those things, Jonathan, though, like as long as we're being a little tongue in cheek, where, uh, where, where we're a few years from now, we might have wished the last issue yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, well, we also may, uh, <laughs> being a little tongue in cheek, it might be one of those things where someone later will say, like, well, what this book really would have benefited from was, you know, oh, some more input from that publisher. So we'll see. You never know when you're making stuff, you don't know what'll strike, you don't know what will work, you don't know why it will work. Um, you know, there aren't too many people who when first looking at the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would have said, ah, a billion dollar hit maker. It's true. Um, The other thing I think that is uh, just a a real takeaway from me in here is I really uh, have also appreciated just how uh, willing, you know, you've been to get weirder and weirder. And it's something that also uh, Lyndon and you are a letterer. We've kind of instructed in, you know, many occasions, you know, we'll just try something stranger, try something stranger. And he's taken the initiative on that uh, too in, in, in many places. And so I've been really pleased with his work. I think is exceptional. Your work is just, I think this is some of the best work you've ever done uh, personally. Uh, I have a hard time looking at how I'm doing because it's, I'm looking at like the, the 15 year old stuff and the newer stuff. And I'm kind of, it's all a mishmash for me, but I'm pretty proud of how it's been turning out. Just where it really like syncs together. And the three of us are, uh, hitting in a concert, like at the end of the second issue, I think, especially, uh, is a major moment for me. That for me was also a moment where I said, oh shit, this is really working. Um, and without giving any spoilers to the reader, Uh, and just talking process, um, you know, we had done this lettering page that had laid out the beats of the page, which I had seen blank. So I knew sort of the shape of the story. And then I said, there is a thematic element that is missing in this. We've been referencing the moon. We've been talking about the moon. This last page, last couple of pages of this book, it's absent in any of this. I have to find a way to bring it in visually. Um, And so once I brought that imagery to it, it changed some of the beats and the layouts and the lettering. And then the lettering got put back over the new artwork. And then Jonathan looking at that said, oh, I need to rewrite some of it so that it matches the tone and beat. And I didn't know he was doing that rewrite. And so when the page came back to me, rewritten, 
to best suit the art. So I had adjusted it to suit the theme. And then the letterer had adjusted it to suit the pace. And then when those two things came together, the writer came in and readjusted it to address tone again in the language. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is something new. And it's bigger than the sum of all of our efforts. And, you know, as an artistic person, what more do you possibly want from that? Yeah, it's just the it's just the, one of those sort of moments. And there's been a couple in the this in these issues where it's just like there's been a couple pages where it's really hit, uh, where I just think you know things have really clicked uh, across you know the art and letters and uh, writing and you know it just kind of it all come together so perfectly, and you know there's a couple moments with mother in particular. I think the mother character is really one that you. In my original drafts, I was very frustrated by how I didn't feel like the mother was working. Uh, and I think it's kind of transmuted over this point, the, you know, to the point where the mother is maybe one of the more most interesting characters in this book. Um, and the one of the more powerful, you know, figures. Uh, uh, whereas, again, I got very frustrated that I felt she was just too weak character in my original uh, scripts. Uh, and so I think like, Moment, things like that and seeing certain things change from you know my early drafts to how it ended up and seeing sort of moments where the you know Yumi and uh, Lyndon are all kind of in sync and it's firing off just right um, at the start of issue three is a really great set of moments you know there's at the end of issue two you know some really amazing stuff issue five I think is going to be just explosively amazing uh, you know i'm really excited by how that kind of story is culminating you know and there's just so much going on that i'm just really thrilled about it well and, and yeah one of those times the last issue of the series is definitely one of those times where uh uh you know as an illustrator i looked at the work that was there and the pace we were at and i was like hmm I could finish this the way it's written no problem we could do it as we've agreed and we laid out what it would be but some of these things, I think I need to add five more pages. Wait, maybe it's 10. It might be 15 more pages. Am I prepared to do that for the sake of delivering the story on the mark that it's pointed towards? And uh, it was one of the few times in my uh, professional art life where I didn't care if it made financial sense. I just... It had to be done that way. So I was just going to do it. Well, and I just want to point out for people who are listening and thinking of creating comics, like that is exactly the kind of thing. And when you see this final issue and how it, ex it ex is expanded beyond the other issues and, and some of the things that that has made possible in terms of this pace and the draw of the story, that could never have happened if you were a hired gun. Uh, it literally, you wouldn't have been allowed to do it one right uh, yeah, true. but also it would you just could never have justified that yeah that extra work yeah and it was one of those moments where it's like well i'm putting this extra work in so if it's better maybe it connects better with readers maybe it connects better as an experience and since i am part owner of this doesn't it behoove me to then put my best efforts in uh yeah ownership you know as anything when you have your own agency in something you tend to uh treat it with a little bit more respect 
What's some final thoughts, uh, Gregory, before my kids smash through the door and ruin everything? <laughs> my kids have been uh, thumping around upstairs, so uh, yeah, I'm I sure can. some of that's on the audio. Um, the, uh, my final thoughts are that uh, I'm really excited to see the audience reaction, uh, good or bad, to our very strange experiment that is the eye collector. I'm really excited to uh, take it to a reopening world and see people's response to it in person. Um, and I really hope that people will take a chance and order it direct from the heavy metal website because uh, it's some of my favorite work in the last uh, 24 months. Yeah, and my final sort of thoughts on it all is I'm just very you know grateful this project has gone the way I uh, you know, better than I thought it would go. You know, I was, uh, one of the kind of, it was one of those projects where if I'm being really honest, I just, it took so long because I just wasn't working on it. Uh, like I should have been because I wanted to not screw it up. And I was just a little afraid of screwing it up, you know, uh, because it did, there's a lot of personal sort of stuff in there. And it, it, even though it may not seem so, <laughs> and it has a real like power, for me. Uh, and I just, you know, have been afraid to kind of finish it wrong. And uh, I just feel like, you know, what L Lyndon did as a letterer was just so on point. And what you've been doing, I think, on it has been transformative with it and the material and it has been some of the like best work I've seen you do. And I just, I'm, to, to hook up with Heavy Metal for this book, who I think you know, if anybody w likes this book, it's going to be the people who, you know, are in for heavy metal and it's, you know, strange ride of a crazy avant-garde genre, you know? And so I just feel like it's um, come together in a way I could, would never have anticipated. And I'm, you know, just really thrilled about it. Uh, so, you know, I'm just very grateful for everybody else who got involved and kind of, I think, elevated it in exactly the way I was afraid I wouldn't be able to elevate it myself. Well, this has also take a lot of credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been super pulp science where we talk about how genre gets made. Uh, my uh, co-conspirator and collaborator on the eye collector, Dr. Jonathan Ball, his uh, new Award-winning collection of short stories is available anywhere, The Lightning of Possible Storms. And you can, of course, get The Eye Collector uh, at heavymetal.com and just look up The Eye Collector and you will find it there. Um, and it'll be soon available in comic stores everywhere and bookstores worldwide. Mm -hmm.